0: Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast.
1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. Here we are every Saturday noon to uh, tell you what's been going on in the field of public and, for that matter, private education because although we are all for public education, we have to tell you what is actually going on with the system which is undermining public education, which is the private sector. Privatisation, globalisation, decentralisation, marketisation, commodification of education, that's all been going on for the last 40 years and the public system is being thoroughly undermined and it's got to fight back. So we're here on 3CR to do just that. Now we've got a very interesting program for you today. We've got some very very interesting scuttlebutt, which was in the Australian Financial Review on the um, privatisation of the TAFE sector. With uh, people might remember a certain John Dawkins, who in the Hawke government introduced the HECS scheme, so that all of our youngsters are now leaving university and even TAFE with a huge debt, and some of them are, used, are leaving the privatised TAFE system with a huge debt and no qualifications because they've gone belly up. A $19 billion scandal it was and is, and we'll be talking about that a bit later. But um, Trevor Kobold has written again, and he's going to, um, or Oliver's going to tell you what uh, Trevor Kobold has got to say about the history and the fate of the Gonski report. And Dale will tell you what the dogs think about all of that. Maddie's going to talk to us about investing where it matters, which is in capital grants for public schools. And Dale's going to tell us a very interesting story about a school teacher in a Christian school who was sacked because she was not of the right sexual. Um, inclination and her sacking was actually perfectly legal and Mr Morrison, with his legislation about religious rights up in up in Canberra, is going to try to make it stay legal. Maddie and Sorrell are going to tell us about the uh, sad and sorry saga of a TAFE group, a privatised TAFE group called Vocation. So we also have a great state school, uh, but we'll leave that to Maddie. But first, our press release. It's entitled Save Our Schools, Trevor Cobbold on the History and Fate of the Gonski Report, and it's press release 900 at www.adogs.info, and Oliver is going to tell you uh, the conclusions c- that Trevor Kobold came to about what has happened to that very famous 2011 Gonski report on the needs of children throughout Australia. Over to you, Oliver.
2: Thank you, Jane. The following is, a con- is the conclusion of a new working paper published by Save Our Schools. It provides a comprehensive review of the Gonski Inquiry and its report on school funding in Australia the full paper can be downloaded on our website. Comments on the paper are invited. A notification of issues not covered and mistakes of fact analysis and interpretation will be appreciated. Please excuse any remaining typos and repetitions and comments can be sent to the Save Our Schools email address, which is saveourschools690 at gmail.com. The Gonski report was a watershed in the history of school funding in Australia it changed the whole focus of school funding from choice, under the Howard government's SES model, to making equity in education the centrepiece of education policy. It made the biggest commitment to improving equity in education in the history of school funding in Australia. The strength of the report was that it recognised the problem of disadvantage in Australian schooling and made serious recommendations about future funding to reduce disadvantage. It made several contributions to the development of of a more equitable school funding system. First, it adopted far reaching equity objectives. It supported a minimum level of education for all students, which it set at year 12, or its equivalent, and the social equity objective that differences in educational outcomes are not the result of differences in wealth, income, power, or possessions. Second, it established the principles and framework for a funding system to achieve greater equity in education. It recommended a needs-based model comprised of a base funding level and funding loadings for various categories of disadvantage. Public and private schools will be funded according to the same principles and framework. Third, it recommended a large increase in funding of $5 billion a year, the large part of which will go to public schools because they enrolled a vast majority of disadvantaged students. Fourth, it recommended a nationally integrated funding model combining combining Commonwealth and state funding. It also recommended the establishment of the independent national schools resourcing body to oversee the maintenance and development of the model. However, the recommendations of the report promised only limited progress towards its ambitious and challenging equity goals. There were several key weaknesses in the report that would serve to perpetuate inequity in education. First, there were several inconsistencies between the equity goals set in the report and the outcomes targets used to determine the estimated funding increases. The funding estimates were based on more limited outcomes targets than those implied by the dual equity objective adopted by the report. In particular, the report adopted a limited measure of adequacy in education and ignored its own social equity objective in setting the standard for the SRS. Second, too much of the additional funding would be directed to adequately resourced schools because the SRS was set too high. It left too little to be directed at disadvantaged students. This was exacerbated by funding loadings for low SES students, indigenous students and students with limited English proficiency that were far too small and unlikely to prove effective. Third, the new no losers guarantee was a severe self-imposed constraint on the scope of what the review could recommend. The review panel effectively rewrote its formal terms of reference in adhering to the government's guarantee that no school will lose a single dollar. This self-inflicted weakness undermined its commitment to equity and served to sustain inequity. It meant that over that the overfunding of many well-off private schools that resulted from exceptions to the Howard government's SES model would be formally incorporated into the future funding model. High SES private schools would continue to receive large amounts of government funding, which contributes to their large resource advantage over low SES government and private schools. This funding could be better used in funding disadvantaged schools. Fourth, the report's recommendation for the funding of private schools were based on the flawed concept of capacity to contribute. All available measures of the capacity to contribute overestimate the financial need of schools because they ignore income and in-kind resources provided by grandparents and ignore private donations to private schools and their assets. These omissions from the assessment of capacity to contribute results in significant overfunding of private schools. Fifth, the report's support for greater philanthropy in funding government schools had little regard to the influence that philanthropic organisations have acquired over-education policy in some overseas countries and their predilection to support market-based education policies. Six, the report's support for greater autonomy for principals in making decisions about budgeting and staffing was somewhat cavalier in that it had little regard to the extensive research evidence that shows that autonomy in these areas has little to no impact on student achievement. However, these flaws should not detract from recognising the contribution of the report into achieving a more equitable funding model. It made equity in education the central focus of education policy and funding and promised a much needed funding boost for disadvantaged schools. It provided the basis for developing a genuine, nationally integrated needs-based funding system. Unfortunately, its weaknesses meant that the massive overfunding of private schools would continue. Now, Dale will read out the dogs' comment on that article.
3: Thank you, Oliver. Yes, the dogs uh, respond. A marvellous informative paper, worth reading in full, if only to understand the complete intransigence of the coalition and the independent schools of Victoria. However, dogs are saddened that people still think that a needs policy is even possible when you have to deal with religious men who place power and wealth before genuine compassion and each and every Australian child, not the chosen few. We are now more than paying for an expensive denominational system. Schools which are not open to all children and teachers and parents, with offence to none, should be taken over and made into public schools. Our 19th century forefathers trod this road. In 1844, a select committee on education in New South Wales rejected a denominational system and recommended a general system of education, which became our public system. They said, the first great objection to the denominational system is its expense. The number of schools in a given locality ought to depend on the number of children requiring instruction which that locality contains. To admit any other principle is to depart from those maxims of wholesome economy upon which public money should always be administered. It appears to your committee. Committee impossible not to see that the very essence of a denominational system is to leave the majority uneducated in order thoroughly to imbue the minority with peculiar tenets. It is a system always tending to excess or defect. It places the state in an awkward dilemma of either applying money whose expenditure it is not permitted to regulate or of interfering between the clergy and their superiors your committee have thought it better to recommend that one uniform system shall be established for the whole of the colony and that an adherence to that system should be made should be made the indispensable condition under which alone public aid will be granted it took another 36 years before politicians like parks finally confronted the religious hierarchies and withdrew all funds, public funds, from sectarian schools. The national system, now our public system, were finally able to flourish. If we don't learn from our history, then, well, what are we doing right now? Uh, And to that end, a paper entitled From Carmel to Gonski, outlining increasing inequality. Inequalities in Both Australian Educational and Social Developments Under the Cloak of a So-Called Needs Policy, was presented by Jean Ely at Melbourne University in November 2020. It's on our website homepage at uh, www.adogs.info. And I'd just like to say congratulations to Jean. This is press release number 900, so well done on continually keeping us informed week after week Uh, and this is our 900th and all of which are available at our website at www.adogs.info okay we'll be right back after this short break
4: well brothers and sisters what a show of strength we've got here today
1: Well, this is the Dogs programme, and we hope you're still with us because there's a lot of very interesting material this Saturday. Maddie is going to tell us about a very interesting article that has been produced by the Australian Education Union uh, on work done by the educational economist, Mr. Roris. And um, it is entitled Invest Where It Matters. Over to you, Maddie.
4: Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, um, so it was written on the 5th of August, 2021. Government spending on school facilities and buildings has favored private schools to an astonishing degree, says a new report by economist Adam Rores. The report, Investing in Schools Equals Funding the Future, examines government funding for capital works over the 10 years to 2018. Private schools received more funds for capital works in seven out of the 10 years, despite having about half the enrolments of public schools. In only three of the years of the period Roris studied, capital investment in public schools exceeded private school funding due to the Rudd government's economic stimulus program, the Building Education Revolution, or BER. And that was in response to the global financial crisis.
1: I don't know whether people remember that. But um, it was a terrific program for public schools. But didn't the coalition drop everything they could possibly find on it? Um, whereas the sports roads and the, um, the car parking rorts uh, make whatever went wrong with this particular program just pale into insignificance. <laughs> but remember, there was still money given for private schools under this under this program Rudd's program. But for once in about 50 years, the um, public school system received decent capital grants.
4: Roris said. Investment in private school facilities is at least double that of public schools per student in any given year and in some years almost four times more. The imbalance is enormous. It's not just a little, it's totally off the scale. Capital investment per public school student over the 10 years varies from an annual average of just over $1,000 in Tasmania to as high as $2,141 in the ACT, the report finds. But the average annual expenditure post BER collapsed across all jurisdictions, with Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales having the lowest levels, uh, $500, $572 and $610 respectively. Roris calculates that public schools were deprived of $21.5 billion in school investment for the first five years the coalition was in power, which was 2013 to 2018. As Australia looks to shake off the effects of the pandemic, there have been widespread calls on governments to accelerate capital investment to help stimulate the economy, says Roris. Public schools are ready-made sites for this kind of investment which offers a long-term return that can't be produced by private operators. And public schools distribution across the country in urban, rural and remote communities provides a scalable and effective way of delivering stimulus. Not to mention the positive effects on school participation and learning outcomes. Drawing on OECD research, The report estimates that capital investment in Australian public schools could help generate approximately $5.2 billion every year at an extra annual cost of $3.8 billion. Rora says a particularly troubling aspect of underinvestment in public school facilities is that it tends to be most deficient in areas where it's needed most. For example, in lower socioeconomic regions or schools with high numbers of students with disability. More than 70% of students with disability attend public schools and with rising enrolments, many schools urgently need new or improved facilities that are fit for purpose. At the South Australian School for Vision Impaired in Adelaide, the gym is the size of a small classroom, says physical education teacher Andrew Quisson. Despite the inadequate facilities, the school has built a strong sporting and athletic tradition. One former student is Paralympian Kieran Modra, a swimmer and tandem cyclist who won a swag of medals at eight Paralympic Games and the 2014 Glasgow Commonwealth Games. The school's blind tennis program is attracting strong student support. Um, the South Australian School for Vision Impaired introduced the first blind tennis program in South Australia in 2015. And it has produced medal winners at world championships. Some of the program's juniors are in line for national selection, says Wisson. But our gym is less than a full sized badminton court, so we can't even fit one blind tennis court in there. It's also a concrete box. The concrete echoes. And the kids track the balls audibly. Wisson says the school is forced to hire a full-size gym and tennis courts, but it's not an ideal solution. The tennis courts are outdoors, but blind tennis is usually played indoors, away from glare. And the gyms belongs, the gym belongs to a nearby school, meaning that access is limited for um, the S-A-S-V-I students.
1: Well, there you are. It's it's really very unequal, isn't it? One would have thought that at least for children with disability with such talent, they could produce a decent, um, decent facilities. It's really well, the
4: government would just care. Just a little bit of care, just a little bit of empathy, just a little bit. That would well,
1: when be so- you, when you see well, when you see the extraordinary playing fields and facilities in the private sector. Even the so-called media schools, it just makes one wonder. Mm -hmm. So how can this uh, situation be made good, I wonder?
4: Yeah, well, we need to restore equity. Um, And RORIS recommends federal, state and territory governments stop providing capital investment to private schools. And that they instead direct these funds toward rectifying the $3.8 billion capital investment gap in public schools. Roris finds that this change could return more than $5 billion a year in the long term in improved educational outcomes. He recommends greater coordination among school communities to identify critical infrastructure gaps in schools, and that modern monitoring and reporting systems be used to quickly draw attention to problems with facilities. He also recommends that schools facilities boards be established at regional and state levels, with the active participation of teachers parents and students. I think that's pretty innovative. I think it's a different way of thinking about the educational system. I think they're all um, really, really good points and good advice. Um, the dec- decades-long neglect of Australian public schools has been facilitated by the effective absence of accountability towards the community members who need and use these facilities, says Roris. Bureaucratic systems prevent this neglect from being communicated and thereby block demands for effective and efficient investment in schools. The democratic participation of teachers, parents and students in the oversight of school facilities can give voice to reasonable demands for justice and equity across all school systems.
1: Well, we saw that this happened up at Kensington in recent weeks, didn't we? Mm. They uh, kicked up a big stink because they'd been raising all the money themselves, including the children. And finally, uh, Mr Andrews or Mr Molino came good. Well, thank you uh, for that, uh, Maddie. My pleasure. You can see why with these kind of figures, dogs are here on 3CR promoting the interests of public schools. We'll have a bit of a break and then we've got some more interesting material
0: Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people.
1: Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter. In recent years, we've found that the uh, private school system has mushroomed with rather straight-laced, not very inclusive uh, so called Christian schools. And these Christian schools are very literal in what they uh, believe. Uh, and uh, they think that some people go to heaven and other people aren't going to go to heaven. In other words, they're quite prepared to play God, which, if I might say so, is a very dangerous thing to do indeed. Uh, and in so doing, Uh, they're quite prepared to say who they will allow to teach their children. And uh, we're going to hear from Dale about a very interesting case. But over to you, Dale.
3: Thank you, Jean. Yes, this article was from the um, Sydney Morning Herald by Ben Schneiders and Royce Miller. Steph Lentz was sacked this year for being gay and it was perfectly legal. LGBTQIA plus people who work at religious schools have no protection from anti-discrimination legislation and they fear the federal religious discrimination bill is about to make things worse. Steph Lentz won't be going to heaven. At least that's what the Covenant Christian School told her in December as it prepared to sack her after she came out as lesbian. Lentz was a devoted English teacher at one of Australia's growing number of small, low-fee Christian schools, and hers is just one of many stories of discrimination against LGBTQIA teachers dismissed or pushed out of their jobs or pressured to remain silent about their sexuality by school policies and employment contracts. Her sacking was perfectly legal under state and federal laws which give religious organisations, including government-funded evangelical schools, exemption from anti-discrimination legislation. But as the federal government prepares to introduce the third draft of its contentious religious discrimination bill to parliament later this year, LGBTQIA plus staff and students fear yet worse treatment. Australian law already allows this the kind of discrimination that got me sacked for what I believe and who I am, says Lentz, who's gone public for the first time about her dismissal from Covenant in Sydney's northeast. The new bill will only reinforce that religious schools can continue to discriminate with outdated, stagnant views and processes. Questions of sexuality... Evangelical schools, many based in outer suburban and regional areas, employ tens of thousands of people and educate hundreds of thousands of children in Australia. They tend to charge low fees, usually less than $10,000 a year, and are heavily reliant on taxpayer funding. Governments in turn rely on them to relieve pressure on the public system in outlying areas. Uh, Lentz, 30, fitted in perfectly, or so it seemed. She'd grown up in a conservative Protestant community and in 2017 became a valued staff member at the school in Belrose, which relies on government money for almost half of its funding. She married at 23 and considered children, but for years endured internal struggles over her same-sex attractions. Because of my strong commitment to Christianity and its doctrines, I suppressed that part of myself, believing it was wrong, she says now. Then she took a soul-searching year off work in 2020, and I came out to myself for the first time in a real way. Now divorced, Lentz left her deeply conservative church and joined a new evangelical community with a more affirming attitude to homosexuality. In the spirit of honesty, she wrote to her school to explain that she was gay, but that she had reconciled her Christian faith and her sexuality. She assured the school's leaders that she could continue to be a dedicated Christian teacher. Should questions about sexuality arise in class, she would present the school's strong convictions while acknowledging that some Christians hold different views. Shortly afterwards, in a confidential letter last December, The school praised Lentz for her passionate Christian teaching, but noted she had failed to affirm the school's statement of belief, including the immorality of homosexuality. In another confidential letter in January, Lentz was dismissed. Her beliefs, the letter said, were no longer consistent with the school's. A rallying cry for conservatives. This is a systemic issue, not isolated to one school, says David Patterson. Patterson, now a committee member at Flinders Christian Community College, southeast of Melbourne, has seen the issue from within. He's been a youth worker, pastor and finance manager within Christian Schools Australia, a network of 132 mostly low-fee religious schools. A sense of justice has prompted him to speak out for the first time after watching Christian friends struggle with their sexuality. There's too much pain and too many lives are being negatively impacted, says Patterson, who is not LGBTQIA+. I'm from South Africa. This is what apartheid was. It allows you to be discriminated against with a legal basis. Patterson and Lentz say many schools began taking a harder line against people's sexuality after the same-sex marriage debate in 2017. It and the religious freedom debate that followed focused the attention of some institutions on the sexuality of employees. Some schools, they said, had since reworked policy documents and employment contracts to require staff to adhere to strict moral codes. It, discrimination based on sexuality, was made a central issue and it's been given a deep sense of legality. It's a rallying cry. We're using the vulnerable as a point of unity, Patterson says. This discrimination is being funded by the taxpayer in the 21st century when broader society has said this is not acceptable. Multiple teachers interviewed by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, speaking mostly on the on the basis of anonymity to preserve their employment, say they too have observed or been personally subject to discrimination because of their sexuality. Patterson says discriminatory policies and clauses are often hidden in values statements, employment contracts or job interview questions because school leaders lack the courage to be transparent knowing that their position is indefensible to the wider school community and general public. In 2019, the 2019 Constitution of Crest Education, which takes in Rivercrest and Hillcrest campuses in Melbourne's far southeast, teaching 1,700 students and employing 256 staff, says homosexuality, homosexual activity is unprofessional conduct along with unlawful sexual activity, including grooming. The schools are 56% government funded. A leaked administrative policy from the Hillcrest campus warns such behaviour will result in the college taking disciplinary action, which may involve termination of employment. The school did not respond to a request for comment. A sword, not just a shield. Opponents of the federal government's proposed religious discrimination bill, which the Attorney General Michaelia Cash uh, plans to table this year, fear it could extend further the right to discriminate. The bill will be the third draft of contentious legislation, first flagged in 2017 by then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to appease conservative coalition MPs during the marriage equality debate. Its new provisions are unclear, but the second draft strengthened the abilities of doctors and other health professionals to refuse treatment to patients on religious grounds. It also restricted large employers from limiting what employees could say outside the course of their employment, the so-called Israel Israel clause, allowing people to make discriminatory statements of belief as long as they were made as good faith expressions of their religion. I don't believe Schools should be allowed to teach those damaging things. There are queer kids there and they need role models. The bill also overrode existing federal and state anti-discrimination laws to protect religious statements of belief. But a range of critics, including businesses and unions, disability groups, LGBTQIA plus advocates, and some faith leaders say the bill will also allow people citing their religion to wield a discriminatory sword against others, not simply a shield to protect themselves from harm. Anna Brown, the executive of LGBTQIA plus advocacy group Equality Australia, says the government should abandon the deeply flawed religious discrimination bill and rework existing laws to reflect 21st century community attitudes. Teachers and students can be sacked and expelled by religious schools simply because of who they are or who they love, she says. Most Australians would be shocked and appalled to learn that these injustices can occur in Australia in 2021 under existing law. A shock meeting. When Sam Cairns was called to the Vice Principal's Office at Flinders Christian Community College in Victoria, she was expecting to discuss a new employment contract. Instead, she was dismissed on the spot for being gay. He, the vice principal, sat there and stared at me and said, I've been made aware of your choice of sexuality, Ms Cairns recalls being told in 2012. You do know that because of this, we can't have you working here. What sort of message would that send to our community? Cairns was told to collect her belongings and leave the school that day. She'd spent much of her life at Flinders College, which has two campuses and is majority government funded as a student and then as a physical education teacher. But something wasn't right. I was having heart palpitations, she says. Then after years of internal turmoil that damaged her health and led to stints in hospital, I got to the point of thinking that maybe it's my sexuality and I've been leading a double life. When the school dismissed her, Cairns says she was full of shame and absolutely distraught. It was really dehumanising. I just couldn't fathom how it changed the the perception of me. Cairns is no longer Christian and now describes herself as spiritual. Almost a decade after she was sacked, she's working at the supportive mentone girls' grammar and feels strong enough to speak out publicly. I can't fathom laws that tell you you can't be you, she says. I can't fathom that concept. A new start. In December, before her dismissal, uh, Covenant Christian School wrote to her dis- explaining that Christianity had foundational truths and it was necessary teachers adhere to them because a person's salvation is at stake. The letter references 1 Corinthians 6 9, which says, Wrongdoers in the new international versions, including homosexuals, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Proponents of greater religious freedom argue that if people like Lentz disagree with such doctrine, they can, as she has done, work elsewhere. These religious schools want to be hermetically sealed places where they don't have to engage with competing or alternative points of view, even if those points are grounded in excellent scholarship, evidence and compelling human experience. By locking LGBTQIA plus people out, some religious schools are denying their students understanding of the real world and maybe themselves as individuals, she said. Lent cites research into mental illness and suicide among teenagers in religious communities showing that demonising homosexuality is bad for mental health. I don't believe schools should be allowed to maintain the right of people to teach those damaging things. There are queer kids there and they need role models, she says. They can't be what they can't see.
1: Well, I find all this very interesting. Here you have uh, people who have very firm beliefs. Uh, They have actually every right to those beliefs. But if they want to have them, they should pay for them. We shouldn't be paying for them, and their schools, if they take public money, should be open to all children. But I have, I have just a personal uh, view of all this. Um, when, when somebody has experienced discrimination under uh, on any any grounds, um, they suddenly realise what it is. A lot of people haven't haven't ever experienced this, but I have a vivid memory of being a well trained teacher. Uh, with some years' experience, going to Queensland. And because I was married, I didn't have any children, but I was married, I was told to go home to my kitchen. And my response was that I wasn't very good in the kitchen. But in, on reflection, I can't see. I've never for the life of me been able to see how what I do in my kitchen or not do in my kitchen or what I do in my bedroom or not do in my bedroom, has got any relevance at all to what goes on in the classroom if I'm teaching children. Uh, It's it's quite beyond me, but I think this really proves why it is that we must have separation of church and state and why it is that if people want to have these beliefs, then they pay for it themselves. They should not be taking public money from anybody. Uh, But unfortunately, they will want to have their cake and eat it and take it to heaven with them, mm. and uh, sometimes they damage uh, other human beings along the way, and it's a very sad situation indeed. But that's, that's the dog's position: is we want to have separation of religion from the state.
3: Yeah, it's very damaging for, especially for young children, um, for for young minds uh, finding out who they are, uh, to be discriminated by adults and to be have that discriminated discrimination legislated, uh, is only going to cause harm.
1: Schools, schools, schools are about learning and children should be there and feel at home there in a school and be able to learn and not have to worry about all of these things. But um, that's my rather conservative view, I must admit. But that's enough for me. We'll have a quick break.
0: Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways. Retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. Well,
1: here we are back with the dogs program. And our listeners who've been around for a while right remember the sad and sorry sagas of the privatisation of the TAFE system. It has affected teachers, but it has certainly affected a lot of students. And we're going to tell you a story that actually involves Mr John Dawkins and others, uh, including an ex-captain, I think it is, of Shore Grammar School, who thought that they'd cash in on the marketisation of vocational education to the tune of millions and millions of taxpayer dollars. And there are 40,000 students in the end who were involved. But the Australian Financial Review had a very interesting article about the final chapter in the Sad and Sorry Saga, which uh, involved a 50 million settlement in the courts in the last week or so. But Sorrel
0: and Maddie will tell you a little bit about this. Over to you. Thank you, Jean. So a class action against vocation has finally been settled. It was was messy as the rise and the fall of the company itself. In July, a $50 million payout to finalise multiple class actions against training provider vocation put an end to one of corporate Australia's more sorry sagas, and was as messy as the company's astronomic rise and unceremonious descent. In the end, Justice Paul Anastasio of the Federal Court bemoaned the fact that after legal bills and commissions were taken, just over half, $26.4 million, was left for the aggrieved investors who had been taken to the cleaners by the company. For the brief period of its existence, from December 2013 to November 2015, when it went into voluntary liquidation, Vocation operated as a vocational education and training provider, delivering front-end student recruitment and courses and back-end student management services. Former Federal Treasurer John Dawkins was chairman of Vocation. At its peak, it had 40,000 students on its books. Almost all who came with a government subsidy attached. The class action had taken five years and involved three law firms. It argued that Vocation had misled its investors in its original prospectus by not disclosing some of its operations had been stripped of their registrations and government funding for breaching teaching quality standards. Read that again. This
1: this thing run by John Dawkins, who'd been a minister for education.
0: Yes. District. Yeah. They misled investors by not disclosing that they had been stripped of their res- registrations and government funding for breaching teaching quality standards.
1: So they weren't even legal. They were operating without registration.
0: Three of its key executives, Chairman and former Federal Education Minister and Treasurer John Dawkins, CEO Mark Hutchinson and CFO Manvind De Gruel, were front and centre of the scandal, facing allegations both from the class action and the corporate watchdog that they breached continuous disclosure obligations by failing to tell investors the government funding had been cut. PWC also had questions to answer over whether its audit of the company was conducted with reasonable care and skill. Vocation was, for a brief moment in 2014, a darling of the investor community. Born from the merger of three private education outfits, Hutchinson's Avana, Brett Whitford's Customer Service Institute of Australia, and BAWM, founded by five partners, including Wendy Bonici and Michael Langtree, vocation listed on the ASX in December 2013 at $1.89 with backing from UBS and Macquarie raising 253 million that made it the largest private training provider in Australia. Its sales pitch to investors was that state governments were trying to break up the monopoly held by the public training provider TAFE. Victoria moved to demand a driven Victoria moved to a demand driven system in 2009 with other state governments following suit. The Victorian Training Guarantee promised free vocational training to anyone who had finished school and was not in employment or further education. The move to free market principles with the backing of the Coalition of Australian Governments was seen as a free-for-all for smart private companies to tap into the $9 billion national training budget, of which much was being diverted from TAFE to the private sector. Once listed, there was no stopping vocation descent. At one point, it had 40,000 students on its books. It went on an an aggressive acquisitions campaign. In April 2014, it acquired the West Australian-based Australian College of Applied Education, 50% of the Australian School of Management. In May, it bought Real Institute, and in July, the Endeavour College of Natural Health. Its stock price surged. Hitting a peak of three dollars and thirty-five cents within nine months, then, like Icarus, it fell back to earth. Yes, it wasn't long
1: before it was facing a twenty-seven million loss, and uh, it was—it's been in the courts for years and years, and that fifty million of settlement has mainly gone to the um, to the uh, uh, lawyers, of course, but. Who were these people? We all know about John Dawkins, who was in the Hawke government, but was really a ski of one of the pastoral fam- families of Western Australia. And he introduced the hex scheme. He was quite happy for about two or three generations now to have a debt uh, if they wanted to have an education. And um, Hutchinson, we believe, according to this article, was chosen because he looked the part I'm not sure what the part was, looked the part to be able to sell to investors, apparently, what well, was so in the end a bit of a scam. Uh, he had the right background. Now, what's the right background to be a CEO of this kind of uh, training? Um, well, I don't know what you'd call it. It's hard for education, is it? And he went to Sydney North Shore establishment. He was from that establishment, and he was the Shaw School Captain. And he was charismatic, and he was allegedly smart. Well, he's smart enough to get out of this. He hasn't gone to jail, and he hasn't seemed to have paid very much. Uh, he's over in um, South Africa enjoying himself, and uh, Mr Dawkins is over in the Barossa Valley enjoying himself. So um, apparently, the, although, oh, yes, and in the court case, Dawkins had high profile character witnesses, Paul Keating, Bill Hayden, and Steve Brax. So don't expect too much from the Labor Party when it comes to public education because they were the biggest privatisers of all, and the privatisation of TAFE can be laid at their feet at the same time as the real um, marketisation and commodification of education can be laid at the feet of Mr. Abbott and Co. We'll have a break. And then we'll be back with our great state school. And this week, we're going to where there are red spots, where we have parents and teachers and children in very dangerous situations. And this at a time when we discover that Westby College can begin a voluntary on-site vaccination program for 700 staff across three campuses, because, and, and nobody can quite understand this, They have been able to get Pfizer vaccines from one of the friends of the school. Uh, It's extraordinary. But our public schools need many, many friends to get our teachers and our parents and our children vaccinated because they are under pressure but they are still doing a great job and we will see how they are doing it. But now we'll have a break.
4: Every week on the Dogs program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school.
3: State schools are great schools. School of the
0: week, state school. School of the school. week,
5: great state schools. State, state schools, schools, school are great of the schools. week, school for the week here on the Dogs program. <laughs>
4: this week's great state school is springside primary school in caroline springs as jane said prior to our break it is in a red spot at springside we deliver excellence our community works in harmony to develop creative learners who think act and contribute positively to an ever-changing world um, <clears throat> the development of sound numeracy and literally literacy skills are part of the core curriculum at all levels of Springside Primary School. They design and deliver explicit teaching and learning experiences through the Springside instructional model. They tailor individual programs to meet specific educational needs while gradually introducing all learners to challenging content and relevant strategies through a variety of learning contexts. Spade and Spoon is the garden and kitchen program at Springside Primary School. The garden is open to all students during a few lunch times a week. Their focus in the garden is on the students participating in all aspects of maintaining the garden, including planting, watering, weeding, recycling, composting, and harvesting. Currently the year three classes have a one hour session in the garden each week. The Year four classes alternate between an hour session in the garden in the kitchen And in the kitchen, the year fours are learning valuable life skills and cook with ingredients that they have grown in the garden. What a beautiful experience that is. Very um, organic. (laughs) Primary food and technology. The year five and six food and technology program is divided into two parts. The first is teaching the students basic cooking skills. The emphasis is on vibrant shared meals where the children sit down and eat together as a family, in their words. The second part focuses on student-driven projects. The students have chosen to utilise the fruit and vegetables grown and harvested from their garden and excess, excess produce donated to make tasty homemade goodies that are sold at their monthly market, Spade and Spoon. This project gives the students authentic learning experiences from the planning, designing and advertising through to running the market. All proceeds go back into the Spade and Spoon program. It really sounds like they're teaching um, mindful sustainability, which I strongly approve of. Um, In providing for a breadth of learning experience, Springside Primary School offers a range of elective classes and extracurricular opportunities. The interschool sport and athletics program has consistently seen Springside students represent the uh, the school at zone, district, regional and state levels. Springside Primary School also offers music via Genesis Music School. In delivering on their focus to provide a stimulating learning environment for their students, Springside Primary School strives to enrich the learning experience of these students at Springside with a vibrant and engaging range of subjects. Their core subjects are complemented by specialist delivered content in the areas of performing arts, health, and PE, visual arts, Indonesian, food technology, and ICT, guided by eSmart practices. The inclusion hub is a space that welcomes everyone and is inclusive of all individual needs and interests. A rostered timetable of activities are available, but options for students to choose alternate activities such as drawing, board games, Beyblades, chess, Lego, fidget toys and sports are also on offer. Staff support play through using visuals and prompts to teach waiting and turn-taking and explicitly teach pro-social behaviours such as losing gracefully, and joining in on non-preferred activities. The timetable is regularly updated by students, for students. Noise cancelling headphones are available upon entry or alternative students can chill out in a quiet zone across from the inclusion hub. Um, I'm gonna throw some stats at you from the My School website. There are 791 students, uh, 392 boys and 399 girls, 59% of these students um, have a family background speaking languages other than English. The ICSIA value is 1,017, which is slightly above average. And 10% of the children attending the school come from families whose income is in the top quartile of the population. 31% come from the second top quartile and 33% from the third quartile but 26% come from the lowest quartile. So there's a large group in this school that could be labelled economically disadvantaged. The finances reveal that the teachers in this school are doing marvellous things on very little indeed. The Australian government provides only $2.2 million. The state government provides $8.7 million. and The parents fork out $252,000 in fees and raise $262,000 per annum. Only $110,000 has been spent in the last year on capital works and the per-student cost is only $12,000. Given the current pandemic circumstances with hotspots and Tier 1 sites, this school, its teachers and its students should be given all of the assistance they need to keep up their great work.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Maddie. But I think that our time has gone. Gone. And it's time for us all to say bye for now.
5: I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe here ten years dead I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says, I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I.